the things that are wrong, the things that go wrong, the things we do wrong, in a world that has gone wrong, so that we can then see the solution, how to live right within that. But in order to have an accurate view of what is wrong, we're going to have to have the right lenses through which to see the problems. And so last week we began looking at one of five things that we're going to discuss over the next few weeks together. The first of those was that facts need to be interpreted. I said last week that there's no such thing as a brute fact, just a fact that stands by itself. But rather, all our facts have to have an interpretation placed uh, upon them. Every fact requires an interpretation of the fact. And so, I mentioned as illustration last week that if you look at a tree, you can simply put an interpretation on that that says it's the product of something impersonal called nature. And it's, it's evolved by time and chance. But another person could look at that same fact, there's a tree, and put a wildly different interpretation on it. That this is a creation by a personal God. And that it actually represents something about his beauty and his creativity and his power. So you've got the same fact, you've got a tree, and um, two people can look at it and interpret it completely differently. I mentioned last week you can look at a living organism and even the name you use to describe it will be based upon your interpretation. If you call, uh, what I, if you call the living organism a child or a fetus, you've interpreted that fact quite differently, haven't you? And so we get the idea that there's just the facts. But the facts never stand by themselves. The facts have to be interpreted. And that's true as we look then at our problems, when we look at what is wrong. The facts, what we see, have to be interpreted. And then we've got four other things that I gave you last week that we're going to look at as well. But we want to finish the looking at the facts and the interpretation that God places upon the facts with regard to our problems. So if it is the case, and it is, that there's no such thing as just the fact that stands by itself, completely objectively looked at, but rather there is the bias, there is the perspective that we bring to the fact that will affect how we see it. If that's true, then we need to make sure that we see ourselves, we see the world, we see others accurately. And we're only going to do it Look, look at those things accurately if we have the set of lenses that God provides. That set of lenses comes to us by His Spirit and through His Word. And so we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. And when it says that he does not accept, it's the same word for Receive that's used in John chapter 1 and verse 11, that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, did not accept him, did not welcome him. And so the man without the Spirit does not receive the things that come from God. Or to put it another way, he's not wearing God's lenses. He doesn't see it from God's perspective. 
And so he's going to look at the same phenomenon, he's going to look at the same facts, and he's going to interpret them differently than the person who is wearing the lenses of God's Word and by His Spirit. So, if it's a choice between behavior issues, our problems, being something that I suffer from and something that I have that's not my fault, that's one side. So we've got these behavior problems. And you could list, you know, the person's name, and then you could list the characteristics of how they talk and what they do. And you could list those, and if it's a choice on the one side of them suffering from these things, or they have something that causes them to do these things, on the one side versus on the other, it's about the way they think, and the things they say, and the things they do, which do you think most people are going to choose? If you put a sheet of paper together with my name on it, Ken, and you put all of my problems, my behavior problems on it, Kim says you'll need an extra sheet of paper. She wants to contribute to make sure we get an exhaustive list. So you put all my stuff on there. And if I'm given a choice between describing that stuff as something that I suffer from or something that I have that's not my fault versus stuff that I think and say and do that is my fault, guess which one I want? And the question is, is how does God view that? What do God's lenses and you can be guaranteed that whatever God's set of lenses say about that, the man without those lenses, the man without the Spirit, will take the opposite. So which one of those does God say? That my stuff, my sheet, my rap sheet, with my name on it, is something I suffer from, it's because of something I have, or it's because of personal thinking, saying and doing. To put it another way, do I have a disorder or am I doing disorderly things? So the question is going to be, what's the right interpretation of those facts? We can agree on the facts. Ken tends to say and do these things. And they're a problem for him and they're a problem for others. But as we interpret why Ken says and does those things, we're going to bring our perspective, our lenses to it. Is the final explanation of my problems and your problems and other people's problems something bad that's happening to me or is it something bad about me? What does God say about that? So we've been treated to the spectacle over the last few months and especially now over the last few days with the conviction of Jerry Sandusky. And I don't know if you noticed how many times as the perp walk, you know, with him with the cuffs on going out to is shown over and over again, how many times commentators said this is a very, how did they describe him? He is a very sick man. but he's in jail. So he's sick. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? 
The language we use suggests how we look at things. And when people look at the facts, this guy did all of this stuff, they're now putting an interpretation on those. But it's a confused interpretation, isn't it? Because on the one hand, he's sick. On the other hand, he really needs to be punished. How do you reconcile those? It would be better, it seems to me, if the guy has done something worthy of punishment, and he has, to put it mildly, if he's done something worthy of punishment, to lose the sickness language. But can you ever imagine a commentator saying Sandusky has sinned over and over again? Why not? Because we have adopted lenses that look at behavior in the first category. It's something I suffer from and I have. That's not my fault. But we're inconsistent with it because we punish people for their, for their sickness. God says sin is the root of our problems. And so in 73, Carl Menninger, non-Christian, writes a book called Whatever Became of Sin. Because he saw this beginning to happen. And here we are decades later and it has taken deep root. And it's taken deep root in the perspective of even Bible-believing people. That we now talk in sickness and quasi-medical sorts of language about things that the Bible calls sin. God says sin is the root of our problem. So if I've got that choice on my rap sheet with my name on it and my behavior described there between it's something I suffer from and something I have versus stuff that, that I do that is wrong, God says it's the latter category. It's the stuff you do that's wrong. And he calls it sin. Now, I need to make sure we understand how the Bible uses the word sin because most of us, when we think of sin, we think of it in terms of a discrete list that you can check off. These are the things that are sinful and you either do them or you, or you don't. But sin is, is, not just a, is not just a discrete list of things that I can check off, but it's actually what I am. It's not just what I do, but sin is first what I am. And because of what I am, I do what I do. Or to put it another way, we sin because we're sinners. So sin is first my nature. A nature that I act on, inevitably. And so it's not just a discrete checkoff list, but rather it is my nature, and then I act according to that nature. It's what I do, it's what I say, it's what I think. But it's not just that. It's what I fail to do and to say and to think that I ought. And so sin is not only things I commit, I, that I actively think and that I say and do, but it is things that I omit, that I ought to be thinking and saying and doing. And so sin is, is much larger than just a, a quick list. You know, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the law of, 
of God, and they're not even the most succinct summary. Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law. But you have these, this, this summary of the, the law toward God and toward, and toward mankind. And many people make the mistake of thinking that's your checklist. But it's simply a representation of the many kinds of things that we do by which we can violate things like the Ten Commandments. So sometimes, because sin is not just this discrete checklist and it's not just in the actions that I undertake, but rather the things I think and say or fail to think and say and do, because sin is my nature and we sin because we are sinners, because it's such a big category like that, then sometimes you can sin and you don't even realize it. So you're sinning, but you haven't consciously sat down and said, today I want to go out and sin. It just comes naturally to you. You know, you don't think about breathing, unless you have a breathing problem and need assistance, but if you're breathing normally, you just do it, don't you? Guess what? We sin like breathing. It's our nature. We do it automatically, and so sometimes people don't realize that sin is actually the issue because sin is so natural for us. Sin is, ultimately, it is interpersonal. And it always involves God. Sin is interpersonal and it involves God. It's not some abstract thing. It is something that I engage in as a person. And it's sin because it offends a person, capital P, namely God. It is always interpersonal, involving God. Now I asked you to turn to Psalm 51. And here's an example of sin being interpersonal and being centered first and foremost on God. David sinned. King David he sins by committing adultery with Bathsheba. He sins by setting up circumstances to have her husband uh, killed in battle. So this guy has sinned against a lot of people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, her husband. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against a lot of people, but then he is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan says to him, you're the man, thou art the man. You remember that in the King James, confronts him point blank. You are guilty, you have done this. And God uses that confrontation with Nathan to convict David of his sin, to cause him to admit what he has done. Now he sinned against all these people, against Bathsheba and Uriah and against the nation, but notice now in Psalm 51, if you look at the top before verse 1, you have the superscription for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So this is now David's response to the conviction he now has after having been confronted by Nathan. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was born sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now can you just feel that? Here's a guy who has the lenses. He sees it clearly. I want you to notice a few things about this. He sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation, but verse 4, ultimately against you and you only, God, have I sinned. This is interpersonal, always involving first and foremost God. But I want you to see what else he says. From the very first verse, Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions, verse 2. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me, my sin. Verse 3, my transgressions, my sin, always before me. Verse 4, I sinned. I've done what's evil. You notice that he takes responsibility. It's me, it's my. I have done this. No deflection. No blame shifting. This is what I have done. So God says sin is the root of our, our problems. And those who see the facts can interpret those facts and will interpret those facts according to the lenses that they are wearing. You can look at someone who has, and I'm, it's incredible that I even have to say this, but in our therapeutic blame other people kind of culture that's been going on for decades, you know, a guy, can, a guy can commit adultery and serial adultery, and it's not sin, rather he's got a sex obsession. Right? This is actually one of the, this is actually one of the, he's got a condition. So he engages in pornography, and he's got a condition. Now, if you had told any of that to David, you know, if David was wired and he had access to the internet and you said and you put an interpretation on the story of David and Bathsheba and David looks at her while she's bathing you remember that story David's leering at her he's lusting and, and if you had said David this is because you got something you have a condition it had no earthly idea what you're talking about and not because they were dumb but because they're wearing a different set of lenses. And so it's interpersonal, always involving God. And you can't see it like David did. And you cannot see it as we are supposed to until God makes you aware of what you look like to him. You won't see it, I won't see it, the way we're supposed to until God makes us aware of what we look like 
to God. Now, I don't like to describe what we look like to God. I don't, because it's really unpleasant. The Bible actually is quite graphic about it. So, you know, Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are as, you all remember, don't you? Filthy rags. And, and, and the, the word there for filthy rags is not just, you know, dirty washcloths. But these are cloths used for a woman's, and I'll just say and go, for a woman's menstrual cycle. This is, this is what God is saying. Now notice, this is how he sees our righteous deeds. Let alone our unrighteous deeds. Okay? So we will not see ourselves as we're supposed to until God opens our eyes to see us as he does from his perspective and he tells us clearly throughout scripture how desperate our condition is because of sin it is interpersonal interacting with him in an offensive way by failing to be and think and say and do as God would so let me use an illustration from Paul Tripp some of you know him Paul David Tripp written a number of books we have some of them on our table over here so I recommend them. And uh, he tells the story of taking a trip to northern India. And he was taken to visit a village in an extreme portion of northern India that just the world has forgotten, says Tripp. And they had to get out of their vehicles and they had to walk a few miles to get back into this place. And he just says, I have never seen such abject poverty in all of my life. Now, I've been to India. I've been to Mumbai. I've been to Mumbai in the middle of the night being driven around by a taxi, seeing the street people just laying in the streets all over the place. But what Paul Tripp describes in northern India, in this remote village, makes, it, makes what I saw look like a palace. And he describes these people as folks who had no idea about personal hygiene. These are people who reeked of having not bathed, matted hair, all of the disfigurement and the, and the ugliness that would, go, that would go with that, the odor. They were called the rat catcher. And yep, that's why. That's what they do. Now, I'm going to get off of this pretty soon. Okay? But Paul Tripp tells that story because he goes there and it is so hard for him to be near those people and to, and to embrace those folks. And to see, and to see them the way he did he then thought as he was leaving, this is how God sees us in our sin. 
Dear friend, do you get that? I'm telling that story. I could go on. I could give you all the details of it. I won't. But just the little bit I said, you know, some of you were shivering. Yuck. But think about now from God's absolutely pure and holy perspective how he sees us. And God has to open our eyes for us to see ourselves as he sees us. And when we do that, when we see ourselves as vile before God in terms of our sin, then we will stop, then and only then, will we stop trying to create half measures and man-made remedies to the problem of sin. When you see it as that bad and debilitating as that and fatal as that, then you'll stop making up ways to take care of it. But you won't stop making up ways to take care of it until you see the enormity of the problem. Further, if you're defensive about your sin, and let me just stop and ask you, just ask yourself, am I defensive about my sin? If a brother or sister comes to me and says, can I talk to you? Can we chat about some of the things you're doing, some of the things I'm observing in your life? You good with that? People coming and, and saying, you know, I think you're missing it here. I think you're missing it with your kids here. Now, if they're a holier than thou, you know, smack them and tell them to move on. But I'm talking about a genuine brother or sister who has genuine concern for your welfare, who comes to you and tries to help you, do you immediately become defensive? Now hear this. If we come, become defensive about our sin, we don't get it. I mean, what are you, you going to do to defend your sin? What are you going to do to cover your sin? Well, if, if there's anything you can do anything at all if you come up with it you let me know more important let God know because he couldn't find anything other than for God himself to come and die on a cross for your disease called sin and my disease called sin and so God has to open your eyes for you to see yourself clearly. And if you're still playing the defensive game, you haven't seen it. And I, and I want to say, dear friends, that in a room this size with this many people, it is entirely possible that you've got people who have been in church for years who have never embraced the gospel for real. And, and I'm not just trying to be dramatic. I do lose sleep thinking about that. Thinking about people in this flock who have never embraced the Savior and know all the language but still defend themselves and still, and still are on the treadmill of what they've always done 
And in terms of progress in their Christian life, it ain't there. That's scary, isn't it? So I'll stop. And I'll say this. I want to use perhaps the remainder of our time to go through and rehearse what many of us know, at least intellectually, but we may not know experientially. And some who came into this room may not know in either way. And so I'd like to rehearse the good news of the gospel. Because you won't see your sin and you won't see your problems and you won't live right in a world gone wrong until you get it. And the only way you get it is when God puts the lenses on and you see yourself from his perspective. And so indulge me as I do that. You know that the gospel means the good news. But the good news is good as seen against the backdrop of the bad news. Now what is the bad news then first? The bad news is this. That I come into this world, as David said of himself in Psalm 51 and verse 5, surely I was born sinful, that I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. So the bad news is I come into this world with a sin nature. It is my nature, it is my disposition to sin. I sin like I breathe. We're going to see in the next week or two the characteristic sins for each of us are different because I learn behavior. I learn different ways of sinning, but I come at the models that I have in front of me and my parents and, and, and my schoolmates and my, my co-workers. I come at that with a disposition to sin and then they help teach me ways to do it. And so my family situation matters. It teaches me characteristic ways of sinning. But I already came with a disposition to do that. So the bad news is, I came into this world with a sin nature. Now, a lot of ways to describe that, but here's the one that is clearest to me. God made you to reflect Him back to Him. God made us in His image. God made us to show His character back to Him. When God looks at us, he's supposed to see his character. He's supposed to see people that think and talk and act like he does. That's what it means to be made in his image, to reflect God back to God. That's what we were made to do. But sin breaks the image. So instead of being a mirror that reflects God back to God, I am now a broken image that distorts what God looks like. And so because I'm still made in the image of God, I can still do some marvelous things. And I still have gifts and abilities that all came from His hand. But they're distorted. Confused. And so God doesn't see a clear reflection of Himself in me. He sees a mirror that is badly broken and in need of repair. And I can't repair it. I mean, you know, you just think about it. You're the mirror. You need the repair. You need somebody to do the work on you. Right? So you're the broken piece. I'm the broken piece. Someone else has to do the work. We are debilitated by our sin. In fact, it's a, it's a fatal 
law. We are dead in sin, the Bible says. So the bad news is, I was made to be this mirror that is now broken because of my sin. God does not see me clearly, see himself clearly when he looks at me. And I can't repair myself. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God has become man to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. That's what it says. So this is God having become man, the God-man, and in the man Jesus, God is reflected, represented perfectly. Jesus then is what you were made to be. And where your first representative, a guy named Adam, where your first representative failed, your next representative, the God-man Jesus, has succeeded. So Adam is tempted in the garden, he fails. Jesus, God, comes to, to earth. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, there's a reason that he was tempted to start this. To show that where the first Adam failed, the last Adam is going to succeed. Satan tempted Adam in the garden, he failed. Satan tempted Jesus in the garden, he succeeded. And then Jesus lives a perfect, perfect, sinless life. And he is executed, he is murdered on the cross. Why? Because if God was one of us, you know, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home. What if God was one of us? What would we do? Well, we already know what we'd do. We'd kill him. And that's what happened. Sinful man and woman could not bear to have the presence of God among them. They killed him. But in killing him, they did precisely what he had come to do to die the death that you deserve and that I deserve. So hear this. Jesus lived the life that I should have lived. And Jesus died the death that I deserve. And he offers his life and his death as a free gift to you. So that now the mirror, the image, is repaired. And God doesn't see you now through your sin. He sees you through the righteousness of Jesus. And you and me who were cast out from God and who couldn't stand to be in God's presence now are brought into the family of God. And he gives us gifts. He adopts us into his family. That's the language the Bible uses. And he gives us his presence, His Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is with me every moment of every day in relationship. 
And as a result of that, I can now look into the pages of Scripture and the Holy Spirit provides the lenses for me so that I can see what David said in Psalm 51, I can see what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, and I can say, yes, that's true. That's true of me. And I can admit that it's true of me. Because thanks be to God, Jesus has taken care of the problem. I couldn't admit it before. Because I had no way to rectify the problem. I knew I couldn't handle it myself. I knew I couldn't do it myself, but I kept going with the charade. And so I had to be defensive, and I had to blame shift. But now I can say what God says about myself. Now I just said, I can say what God says. I just defined a really important biblical term. It's the word confess. The word confess literally means Say the same thing. And now, because of Jesus, I can say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. And I can see myself clearly. And I don't have to be defensive. And I don't have to blame shift. And I don't have to act like I can repair the mirror. No chance. The bad news is, I am a mirror in desperate need of repair I can't do it, but the good news is Christ has done it. And he opens our eyes so that we can see ourselves clearly. And the good news continues. You come to Jesus initially, and you recognize, because he's opened your eyes, to see yourself clearly in your desperate need of him. And you ask him to rescue you, to save you. And he does that in a moment. There's a transaction before our holy God that takes you from being an enemy of God outside of his family to being a cherished child adopted into his family. And then he continues his work now in his child. Having given you his Holy Spirit, his grace becomes operative in your life in astounding ways. Because now get this, guys and gals. Sin does not just deal with judgment. Thanks be to God. See, we think of sin, we think, oh no, I'm in trouble. And you are, and I am. Except Jesus has done it. Jesus has taken it. Jesus has taken the penalty. So now I can look at sin and say, I'm not in trouble. I'm still a sinner, but I'm not in trouble. <laughs> I'm still sinful, but I can face it. I can admit it. And this God who came to earth and died on my behalf to do for me what I couldn't do for myself desires for me to become every day more like Him. And so he wants me to see my sin. And he wants to, and he's actively working to convict me of my sin. But for a good purpose. It's his gracious, it's his gracious operation in my life. And so grace now operates on my sin. And Jesus has paid 
You guys have heard this, many of you. Jesus has paid the penalty on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he's paid the penalty for every sin I have committed, every sin I am committing, every sin I will commit, past, present, and future. It is all under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it. He's paid the penalty. He's delivered me from that penalty, but he is delivering me in the present from the power of that sin. And that happens as day by day I see myself as God sees me. And I appropriate the mercy and grace of the cross. Day by day, conform to his image. Do you all remember that? Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. That he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. It's another way of saying repair the mirror. And he's doing that every day. And so he's delivered me from the penalty of sin, past, present, and future sin. He's delivering me in the present from the power of sin. And I look forward to the promise that he has given to all of those who are in his family, a guarantee that we will one day be removed from the presence of sin. The penalty and the power and the presence of sin taken care of in the good news of the gospel. Thanks be to God. But here we are, June 24, 2012, and we struggle with sin. Every person I'm looking at, every last person here struggles with sin. I struggle with sin, but I am saved, and I am being saved. And I will be saved in the future. And it's the I am being saved part that I need to concentrate on now. That Jesus is progressively, day by day, making me more like himself. And that involves facing it. But I can face it because he's covered it. Now, dear friend, do you get the good news then? That's as clear as I know how to make it. Jesus has done what you couldn't do. And he offers his life and his death to you as a free gift. We're going to pray in just a moment. And anyone here who has never come to God through the gift of Christ given in the gospel, you can do that now. But those of you who have been in church your whole life, I've been in church my whole life. Some of you have as well. And I wonder, every day are you becoming like Jesus? Are you more like Jesus this year than you were last year? Or do you know the lingo? You prayed a prayer when you were six, and you assume that you're good to go. Those that Jesus has saved, he is presently saving. Is his work evident in your life? Are you able to admit your sin? Confess your sin? If you're not able to do that, you don't understand the grace of God in the gospel. And if you prayed a prayer when you were six, and you're now 46 or 66, 
you should pray right now. And say, Lord, I've been going through these motions. And I've come to realize that I don't have the reality of Christ in my life. But I believe that I am a sinner that cannot deliver myself. And I believe Jesus is the Savior who lived and died for me. And I need him. And I ask for him and his work to be applied to me. And he will save you, whoever you are, whatever your age. Let's bow together. Lord, your arm is mighty to save. You can reach anyone. There is no one who is outside your reach. This is your world. And we are your creatures. We were made for your purpose. And you control every aspect of your world. You know where every one of your creatures is on this planet, every moment of every day. Your mercy can reach anyone. Lord, we look at those who have been affected by the corruption of sin over time and in their circumstances. And you, in your common grace, have protected most of us from most of that. And we look at that and we think that we're somehow, therefore, better. We don't see ourselves clearly as you see us. But you can reach the one who is the murderer, like Paul, like David, like Moses, like me in putting Jesus on the cross. You can reach anyone, anywhere. And help me to see and help us to see that there is no difference. Your word says those very words. There is no difference. We are all sold under sin. There is no one who does good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. Therefore, there is no one who has the prescription for their own deliverance, we must be delivered by you and your grace in Jesus. Help us to see ourselves as you see us and reach out for your mercy and grace in the gospel. And having done that, help us to appropriate the gospel every day. Admitting what we are. Admitting our struggles so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus. I pray for anyone who entered this room not knowing the good news, that they're embracing the Savior right now by praying and asking to be saved. And you promise to save them. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's a member of this church. Perhaps has grown up in church his or her entire life, as I have. Know the stories, know the songs, know the lingo. Don't know Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that they will see this as a merciful time right now. 
that a good God reached down to them and reached them in their sin that is as ugly as any other sinner on earth has ever been. May they see their desperate need. Stop the defensiveness. Stop the blame shifting. And come to God through Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for saving us. Thank you for sanctifying us, for changing us. And thank you for the promise that you're going to come again and remove us from the presence of sin. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you and we seek to emulate your character in our relationships and in the spheres of influence that you've placed us. And bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.